The theme this morning that for our service is being like Christ. And I remember I spent a lot of years after I became a Christian trying to be like Christ. And I was just an utter, utter failure. Just could not do it. And as I began to really study the scriptures more and more, I began to realize nobody can do it. None of us can do it. I began to realize that the big issue here is sin. And so I've just got to deal with sin. I've got to you know, look at my sin, and I've just got to stop doing it. And I began to realize there's a problem with that, too. I'm not successful at that. And as I began to study the scriptures, God really revealed to me exactly how we're supposed to be looking at sin, how we're supposed to be dealing with sin. And it's something I really wanted to share with you this morning because it's been a big freedom for me, uh, something that has really enabled me to live as a Christian and live the way God wants me to live and not be burdened down with things that Satan still desires to keep me struggling with all the time. So as we go this morning, sin is not an easy thing to deal with, but we're going to be taking a look at sin this morning and how we deal with it. And then this evening, um, this, I hope as many of you as possible can come out because it's something I really, it's been such an important thing to me in my life and I'd, I hope that all you can come because I'm tying the other part of it in the message this evening. It's going to be about joy, what joy is like in the Christian life. Let's go to prayer. Father, as we open your word this morning to see the things that you've taught us, Lord, how I, I'm just, how aware I am of how inadequate I am to be able to, to teach your word, to present your word. And yet I know, Father, that you've given me the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit who speaks through me. I just pray, Father, this morning that you will use, use the words out of my mouth to touch the hearts of everyone here this morning, including myself. Father, as I put this message together um, under your guidance and your direction, it has been so encouraging and, and so uplifting and, and even exciting for me, Father. And I just pray that that excitement and that, that thrill will come through as, as I speak this morning, Lord. And I pray that you'll open every one of our hearts that uh, go right directly through our minds to our hearts and touch each one of us so that we can understand just more deeply the incredible love that you have for us. And now, Father, just be with us as we open your word this morning. All this I ask and pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. We've heard sin probably over the years defined a lot of different ways. And I have some examples of just some of the things that I've heard. And uh, it's probably some of the things that you've heard as well. For instance, um, how about this one? Everyone has fallen short of the mark, and you need to start obeying, whether you like it or not. And for verses I have, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then further on in Romans, we read, Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they, have, they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon yourselves. Straighten up. Or how about this one? Everyone is rebellious, defiant, disobedient. Your only hope is to repent and change your behavior. How about Romans 3 again? As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. Going back to the Old Testament, we read, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants and prophets. Or how about this one? God demands that we do not sin, rather live in perfect obedience to all his rules. Going back to Leviticus, you are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. 
How about this one? When we do sin, we need to acknowledge our disobedience and then never do it again. Job prayed, teach me, Lord, what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Or how about when the, the lady caught in adultery was brought before Jesus and they were ready to stone her. We all remember the story that Jesus challenged the crowd with, let you who is who's, who's without sin cast the first stone. And slowly they all dispersed and there was no one left. And Jesus turned to the lady and said, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, sin no more. Well, how about this one? God uses punishment to make people obedient. You better watch out. Going back to Leviticus again. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you shall sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies shall eat it up. And I will set my face against you, so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you. If, also, after these things you still do not obey me, then I'll punish you seven times more for your sins. Well, all these scriptures, I've heard them applied this way as, as a, trying to guilt people into being obedient and being the people that, this perfect type of Christian, and it's just not possible. These are conclusions. They are all from scripture. There's no question about that, but they've been all misunderstood and misapplied. And it's no wonder that when we go to, to non-Christians with this kind of an attitude, they run as fast as they can to get away from us. The problem is that applying scriptures this way doesn't lead us to God. It leads us back to Calvary. And Calvary was a set of laws, I'm sorry, to Sinai. Sinai was a set of laws that were that were focused on condemnation for the sin. But God never intended us, his law, to correct us and make us obedient. That's not why he gave the law. The law was given to show us that we're unable, incapable, unable to be the people God wants us to be. We don't have that power in and of ourselves. Our efforts can never be good enough. The law was given to teach us that we need God and we need him for everything and the ultimate need we have is a right relationship with God. That's what Paul was talking about in the book of Galatians that we studied this last year in, in our small groups. In chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. That was the purpose of the law, to show us you can't do it on your own effort. You can't do it by yourself. You can never be good enough. We need Christ. To deal with our sin, instead of going to Sinai, we need to go to Calvary. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, both Satan and the Holy Spirit use the law. Satan uses the law to lead us into condemnation and despair. As we try and try and try to be, be obedient, it just gets more and more frustrating and more and more discouraging. And it just leads to a life that is nothing like the joy that God wants us to have as a Christian. But the Holy Spirit uses the law to lead us to grace and forgiveness and joy. Same law, but a different purpose. The real issue of sin has absolutely nothing to do with rules and commandments and laws and statutes. It's all about relationships. Rules can com produce compliance, but they don't build loving bonds between people. I remember a couple years ago, uh, every year when we go out to the Shepherds Conference, we usually go out a couple days early and just take a couple days and do some sort of a road trip. And it's just a chance for 
those of us to go, a lot of times we don't have any cell phone reception and we just get a chance to spend time together that we don't get on Sunday mornings or with all our busy schedules, just to spend time together. And we actually drove up to San Francisco one year and my sister arranged a, uh, she lives in San Francisco and she arranged a uh, tour of Alcatraz for us. And uh, we went over there and, and she knows one of the rangers out there and we got to see some parts of Alcatraz that the general public doesn't get to see. But what amazed me as I looked at that, I got to thinking, here were these men and they were incarcerated for these horrendous sins that they did and yet they would be compliant as long as the guards had a, an upper hand over them. But as soon as the guards turned their back to whatever, there were all kinds of men who tried to escape. And some of the stories that they had to tell about some of these escape attempts were just incredible what these men went through. They would comply when they thought the guards were watching, but there was no relationship of obedience that was sinking in deep inside that changed them from the inside out. And this is the problem that we have. Rules just produce compliance, but not relationships. God doesn't use rules to make us compliant. So how does he make us compliant? He infuses us in, with himself. John talks about this in 1 John 4:16, and we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. Now keep that in mind as we talk about this this morning. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And then John says an amazing thing, and God abides in him. What an incredible thing. I, I don't know if you've ever really looked at, at creation, but they say that our Milky Way galaxy is made up of countless stars. In fact, they say there's about 200, 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. That's just a number that's just far beyond our, our ability to even comprehend. And then they say that in all of the universe, there's about 200 billion galaxies. And above that is God. And God brought all this into existence just by speaking it. It just staggers the imagination to think of this. But then to think that God loves each of us as individuals so much that he comes and he abides in us. What an incredible thing that's just beyond the imagination to even conceive of. Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. That old nature, that that old person that just had selfish desires and had no real understanding of what love is all about. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What a staggering thing to realize. But that's the key to understanding how we're going to deal with sin. Now when we think about, remember I mentioned, please keep that in mind, that God is love. And when we think about glorifying God in our lives, I need to think in terms of God's sacrificial, unconditional love. So in order to glorify him, in order to bring glory to who he is, if he's love, I need to love. That's the bottom line on this whole thing. And when I think about God's sacrificial, unconditional love going through me and being poured out from me into the lives of others, I begin to realize that what motivates me now is not my selfish desires, but it's the love of God within me because he's come to indwell me and live inside of me. Now we still have a problem though at this point and we're going to talk about that. But he created us in order that we might have an eternal relationship with us that glorifies who he is. And that means that our lives will be a demonstration, will be 
a reflection of his perfect love into the lives of others. And this is why Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. At one point there was a, a lawyer who came up to Jesus when he was on earth and came to him to challenge him. And uh, I can just see him with his beard and his, all his tassels and everything. He came up and he says, now tell me, master, tell me, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? All the time the idea was he was going to trick him. If he said, well, adultery, then he could say, well, what about murder? And if he said stealing, he could say, well, what about adultery? How can you make a claim? And Jesus answered him and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And then he goes on to say, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to say this amazing thing. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That means you can take the whole Old Testament, everything that's required there, and it comes under the umbrella of this perfect, unconditional love. In other words, I'll give an example of, of, of our marriage. I can go to the New Hampshire state law and see what it says about how a husband's supposed to treat a life, a wife. I can look at the federal law and there's things about how I'm not supposed to beat my wife and I'm supposed to do all these things and not supposed to do other things. And I can be in complete compliance with the law and Prudence can feel like I don't love her at all. Um, I can do some horrendous things to her and not be outside the law. But if I am loving her under the, under the, the umbrella of the love that God talks about, then all these other laws just don't even come into, into play. I don't have to go look and see what the New Hampshire law is about husbands and wives. My love for my wife far surpasses any of that. And that's why Jesus said that all the law and all the prophets come underneath these two. And if we follow these two, we don't even have to worry about the other law. We will obey them. So the question comes up then, for believers, um, are all these commands, we have commands in the Old Testament and commands in the New Testament. Are they of really of any value or do we just dismiss them all at this point? No, they're of great value to us. God gave them to us. And remember, he gave them to us because he loves us. First of all, they provide a measure for us to be able to evaluate ourselves, to see if the love we're, we're, we're showing others is really in line with what the Bible talks about in terms of love. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, um, this is one of my favorite passages, starting at verse 28 and going down to 32. It talks about things we're not supposed to do. It says, let him who steals, steal no more. And it goes on to say, let him who has, um, let no more unwholesome words or coarse words proceed out of your mouth. And further down he says, let all bitterness and anger and wrath and malice be put away from you. So I can look at this in, in, in my own life and say, you know, I know I'm not supposed to be angry with someone. I've got to deal with this. Okay, I got that under control. I gave up stealing. I don't steal anymore. And, uh, you know, I've really cleaned up my mouth. Um, I just don't say those words that I shouldn't be saying anymore. I'm doing okay. But I can go back to the scripture and look at the rest of this. And it says, let him who steals, steal no more. Rather, let him work, that out of his abundance he may be able to give to help those who are in need. Let no unwholesome word come out of my mouth. Rather, let everything that I say be things that edify others and build them up and encourage them and comfort them. And let all bitterness and anger and wrath be put out from me, and instead be tender, kind-hearted, forgiving one another. You see, I can go to the scripture and I can find out, 
is what I think is love in my life, does that really line up with what God describes as love? So it becomes something we can use to look at ourselves, to, to have some introspection, and see if we're really letting God love through us the way he desires to. Second of all, they become protection for us. My daughter Shelley um, and her husband bought a, uh, bought a dog a few years ago, bought him as a puppy. And one of the things they wanted to do was they didn't want him running around the yard, but they didn't just want to keep him chained up. So they got this, this device, it's called an invisible fence. You may have heard of it. And what it is, it's a wire that goes around the whole outside of the property that we, that we live in. And there's a special, it connects to a special box inside. And that wire actually becomes a, an antenna. And there's a small, weak radio signal that comes out from that. And then there's a collar that goes around the dog. And as the dog gets close to this fence within a certain distance, he'll start to hear a little beeping sound. And if he gets closer, the closer he gets, the more and more intense it gets. And then if he gets too close to this wire, there's two prongs, and if he gets too close, he gets an electric shock in his neck. Some dogs, it takes two, maybe three times before they realize they don't want to go near that fence anymore. For Barley, it took one time, and that was it. He won't go near that fence at all. But as soon as he starts hearing that beeping, he just stops immediately. Now, this fence was, was put in place because it's, it's a protection. Barley just loves anything that comes in the yard, whether it's a cat, a rabbit, a skunk, he just can't wait to get out there and chase that thing. But it's amazing to watch him. If he finds a cat in the front yard and he'll chase after it full speed, that cat runs out into the road, he'll come up to where he hears that little beep and he stops immediately. So if there's a car coming down the road, he doesn't have any idea that that car could hit him and, and cause him a great deal of bodily injury or, or even kill him. He has no concept of that. That fence is a protection for him to keep him safe. And that's another thing that God's rules and laws do for us. They let us see things that we may not fully understand, but if we stay in compliance with them, it keeps us safe from the dangers that are in the world. Number three, they instill wisdom and enable us to grow and mature. Psalm 119 is one of my favorite psalms. And David wrote in verse 100, I understand more than the aged because I have observed thy precepts. There's a wisdom that comes from when we, when we actually do something, when we obey something, we begin to see the wisdom that's behind a rule or an ordinance. I know that's one of the things, um, I'm a computer programmer, and uh, I, it's always interesting when I go out to a client, and it's a big project, and they have a couple guys who are just fresh out of college, and they have all the, the knowledge that they've gotten on how to program a computer, but they don't have the real wisdom of what it's like to actually make that computer work for the company that they're, that they're programming for. And just to see the lack of wisdom. But then as uh, some of the older programs begin to take them under their wing and show them, here's why you do this, and they begin to do it and see the results of it, there's a wisdom that comes and the respect for the rules that we have. So that's another uh, aspect of that. And that's why David says, thy, from thy precepts I, gain, gain, un, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And fourth, they prepare us to be able to fully enjoy the blessings God has for us. We don't really con have any concept of what God has planned for us. In fact, another one of my favorite verses says, um, all these things God has prepared for them, things that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and hasn't even entered into the heart of man. God has prepared all this for those who love him. And I think a lot of it is we don't see it because we don't have the ability to, pos to be able to comprehend what it's really all about. When I was in high school, I had a friend and uh, his grandfather had bought a Model A back when he bought it brand new, so it was quite a few years back. 
But he'd kept the Model A, he kept it in good shape. And when my friend Mike was 12 years old, uh, his grandfather gave it to him as a birthday present. Now, Mike had a lot of fun with his friends. They'd go over and they'd, and they'd go out in the garage and they'd sit in that Model A and they'd pretend they were going on journeys every different places and they'd pretend they were driving it. And they had more fun with that Model A, but they didn't have any clue as to what that Model A was, really, the value that was there and what it was really, what a blessing that was. But when Mike finally took the driver's ed course and learned how to drive, his grandfather insisted on that and then actually got his license and was able to take that out and, and drive it on the roads and, and enjoy it. He found out there was things about that Model A that he never knew before. It was a, he was able to enjoy that blessing in a way he never could when he was 12 years old. And that's much the same thing with some of the rules that God has given us, some of the laws and the commandments. When we're obedient to them, they prepare us to be able to really thoroughly understand and enjoy the blessings that God has for us that we aren't ready to and prepared for at this point in time. That's why David was able to say, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, the problem with sin is it destroys. Instead of preserving unity and strengthening bonds, it separates. God brought, brought this to our attention in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, where he says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. This is what Satan desires. And this is the works that he does to try and achieve what he desires. This goes all the way back to Genesis. We can read about the first sin. Satan deceived Eve. He told her, he said, you know, um, you, you don't, God doesn't just, isn't the only one who knows what's right and wrong. He said, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But if you eat from it, you're going to know what's good and evil. And you'll be like God's. He's been withholding from you. You don't need him. There was that separation, and we've been dealing with that separation ever since. That's the essence of what sin is. Sin also, understanding how much God loves, how much God must have loved. He, Adam and Eve, he came down to be with him in the garden every day in a way that they could relate to him on a personal, individual level. He would walk with them. So when we separate ourselves from him with sin, it causes God to grieve and experience great sorrow. You see a picture of this in Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus was standing up on a hill up above Jerusalem, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. When I see sin in my life, it should break my heart because I should realize the great sorrow that I've caused God by turning my back on his goodness and his unconditional love for me. And it should take me back to Calvary, back into his loving arms. When I see sin in others, it shouldn't be something where I condemn them, where I challenge them and I judge them. It should also be something that breaks my heart as I realize that the path they've chosen is one of despair and sorrow. And it should compel me to share the truth with them, the truth about God's love and his desire to be reconciled with them. We need to remember what Paul said about the ministry. Our ministry is not a ministry of condemnation. It's not a ministry of compliance to rules. It's not a ministry of conversion. 
It's not a ministry of morality. Our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. We've been separated from God, and he went to the cross so that we can be reconciled to, to him. And that's the ministry that we have. He's given us the truth, and he's given us the ability and the desire and the command to share the truth. So how do we deal with sin? As I mentioned before, I can't be like Christ. I just don't have what it takes to be like Christ because I'm not Christ. And I have trouble dealing with sin. I can maybe be compliant for a while, but sooner or later, I fail again. So where does this start? Well, it starts with right thinking. When we think about the majority of the people in the world, most people want to live in peace. We live in our neighborhood. Some of, my, some of our neighbors I know fairly well. Some of them I don't know at all. But I don't sit there and worry about the fact that my neighbor is going to come over and, and steal from my house. I don't worry about um, my guns, neighbor is going to take out his gun and start shooting somebody in the front yard or shoot the dog. Or It's a peaceful neighborhood. And the majority of people just want to live in peace and just go about their daily lives. But this isn't what we have. In fact, do you remember, I done, some of you, when Bill Clinton was president, I still remember very vividly him coming on the, uh, during the middle of a speech on, on TV one night, and he says, can't we just all get along? What a great question. And the answer is yes, but we won't. And the reason is, we all have selfish motives, and those selfish motives are what set the priorities for what we do. And when it comes to selfish motives, as long as my neighbor isn't challenging me, as long as that guy down the street isn't doing something that I don't like or is getting in my way, I have no problem living in peace with them. But as soon as it comes down to something that's a real threat, all of a sudden, that wall of separation goes right up. And that's what Christ was talking about. The problem is, and I'll give you an example from Micah verse, chapter 6, verse 8, which we're all familiar with. What we really want is for others to be peaceful with us, no matter what the cost, and it, no matter what. In Micah 6, 8, it reads, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your Lord. Now, I can remember, this is the kind of attitude I had before I was saved as a Christian. And I remember reading that verse. I remember, what a great verse. That's exactly right. Now, to do justice, I come, to, come down the road, and I see the, the light, in, light in front of me, and it turns green. And as I go through it, some guy runs the red light and comes right in front of me. Have you ever heard the phrase, where is a policeman when you need one? I would love for a policeman to be there. I would love for that guy to be taken to court. I would love to testify against him. I'd be even willing to be on the jury so that I make sure this guy gets justice. Yes, I want to do justice, to love kindness. Next day, I'm coming down the road. I'm a little distracted. Maybe I'm listening to something on the radio, and I get distracted. And all of a sudden, I look up and realize I'm going 30 miles an hour, and it's a red light, and I go right through. You know, it was an honest mistake. It was just an accident. I want this guy that I almost hit to be, you know, kind. Show me a little compassion. Show me a little grace. I love compassion. I love mercy. I fall right into this, this, this verse. And to walk humbly with your God. I know God's in charge of things. I know God's in control of things. And you know what? I pray about things sometimes. And a lot of times, he works things out according to my desires and my personal priorities. And I thank him for it. I'm very humble. You know, I acknowledge the fact that he does these things for me. I'm not proud about it. 
See how we've taken and just, we can just completely turn the scriptures. It brings to mind that verse that says they rest the scriptures to their own destruction. But when I have a relation with people that has a problem with it, here's the issue. None of those things that I just talked about, the thing that was missing was love. It wasn't in any of those. The attitude of me toward the guy who ran the red light didn't involve love. My attitude toward the person when I ran the red light didn't involve love. And my attitude with, toward God certainly wasn't an unconditional love, an acknowledgement of who he is. But when it gets to people, we, don't, we oftentimes don't realize, well, I, you know, it's just me and God, and uh, I like to be at home on Sunday mornings and listen to the pastors on TV, and I try to listen every single morning, and I try to avoid people, and God and I have a good thing going. That's not what it's about. God wants his love shared through us into the lives of others. But when we have problems with other people, it affects our relationship with God. Matthew 5.23, Jesus said, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. When my desire is to express my love to God, it's really meaningless if I have broken relationships with other people. And that's why Jesus said, don't even try to offer me something. Don't try to tell me how much you love me when you're not being loving to your own brothers and your own sisters. That's what God, he wants his love poured out through us into the lives of others. And if we're not doing that, there's nothing that says that my offering to him, my expression of my love to him is of any value at all. So where do I go from here? Well, first of all, I need to pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal my sin to me, not what I want to do. I already know I've got sin issues in my life. I'm well aware of those. Why would I want to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal even more sin to me? And yet this is what, what David prayed. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious ways, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Notice, he draws a distinction there. There's a hurtful way that breaks relationships, and there's an everlasting way that builds relationships. There might be a sin that I might be ignoring, that I'm just choosing not to even deal with. Or there might be a sin that I'm not even aware of. I need to understand what these sins are in my life. If something that I'm doing in my life is causing a separation between me and other people, I need to know what that is. Second of all, as soon as the Holy Spirit reveals something to me, I immediately need to confess that sin. I need to acknowledge it. I need to say it out loud if need be but I need to confess that sin. If we go to 1 John 1, 9, John tells us here, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we, think, we need to think about what this does here. This takes us directly to the cross. We confess our sins. And it talks about he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. It takes us directly to the loving forgiveness of God. When we confess our sins, notice in this verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. We don't ask for forgiveness because we're already forgiven. God has taken care of that. Every sin, whether I confess it or not, is already forgiven. We need to understand that. And he's righteous. He's perfectly within his judicial right to forgive us our sins because of the penalty that was paid for all of our sins by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That's where we begin to really see the depth of the love that God has for us. 
God forgives every sin because of his absolute justice and his absolute faithfulness. He never says, oh, that was just too much work. We're going to just let that sin go this time. Or that one was just a little too big. Uh, we're going to have to deal with that one in a different way. No, they're all forgiven, every single one of them. And confession should always bring great joy to us because it takes us back to the cross. It takes us back to the reality where we see the demonstration of the incredible love that God has for us and the sacrifice that God had. And it also, it's a, it's, it's a proof of his indescribable and never-ending love for us. We go back to the cross and we see what was done there and we have the full assurance that there is now no condemnation. When I confess my sin, God also begins to change my life and he does it to his glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, we read, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces, um, produces repentance without regret. In Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to work, will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's an amazing thing. When we think about Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He's come to indwell us, and that light that he wants shown into the world, into all peoples, it shines through us. But we can't do it when we haven't dealt with sin. So why do we sin? We sin because we've been deceived. But we also oftentimes think, well, I, I'm just a little deceived about what's right or wrong. That's not true. We all know what's right or wrong. In fact, Paul even talked about that in the book of Romans, where he talked about the, the Gentiles even have a conscience. They know what's right and wrong. The problem is we're deceived about what's best for us. There's times I'm running late for work. I know that the police will kind of let people go a little bit above the speed limit as much as seven miles an hour above the speed limit, and it's actually better for me to speed all the way to work so I can punch in on time and not be docked any pay than to be obedient to the law. I know what's best for me. See how that goes all the way back to Genesis? That's exactly what Satan told Eve. Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Be like God's. You know what's right and wrong. You know what's best for you. Don't worry about the rules. They don't really apply all the time. That's where we get into problems. James writes about this in chapter 1. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brethren. And this takes me back again to the purpose of the law. It shows me that only God really knows what's best for me, what's good for me. And I need to trust in that. I need to think in accordance with God's truth and not according to my worldly desires. Boy, that's a tough one because that, that's just a constant barrage that we have, whether we're watching TV or we're listening to people at work or even just we run across it as we talk about just the things that we like to do. And all of a sudden, our personal desires take precedence over what, what God's truth is all about. The truth is, I can't change other people. That's God's work. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts and converts. I'm just supposed to present the truth, and then God will take over and do the work. 
I can't change circumstances. God's in charge of those. As much as I like to think I'm in control and I do the things I want to, the reality is God is the one who's in control. So I can't change people, I can't change circumstances, but I can change the way I think. This is where Satan does battle with us, in our minds. This is the battleground. And that's why Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then to the Corinthian church he wrote, we are destroying speculations, the King James says, imaginations, things that we just work up in our minds, things that aren't even true. We're destroying these speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How do we do this? Paul wrote about it in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 3. He says, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on earth. Now it's true, God desires to use us in his work and bring about change in the lives of other people. But I have to recognize the fact that my efforts will only be effective if they are directed and empowered by God. If I try to do things according to my own plans or in my own power, I have no guarantee that they're going to work at all. This is what God was talking about through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, not by, mower, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there's three things that we need to, to be on the watch for. We need to understand that motivate us to, 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 to sin, to break relationships with other people. One is lust. Again, going back to the book of James. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. Well, I've never committed murder. That's, that one doesn't really apply to me. But then he goes on and says, you are envious. You cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Doesn't matter whether it's murder or whether it's just a quarrel or a disagreement. There's a separation that's taken place. That relationship has been broken. The next one is fear. We see a perfect example of that with the chief priests and scribes when they brought Jesus to the trial. They knew that he wasn't guilty of anything. They couldn't find a single thing where they could, where they could legitimately, legally condemn him to death. But we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 2, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how they might put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. It didn't matter what was right or wrong to them. They wanted to do what they thought would keep them safe. And of course, the third one is pride. Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. If we let any of these control our thoughts, they will separate us from God. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to lose our salvation, but we lose our fellowship with him. It's something where all of a sudden there's a division. I like to use the example of a, of a young boy who is, liked to throw a ball against the side of the house. And his father came home from work and saw him doing it. And there's a window right nearby and said, don't, don't throw the ball against that side of the house because you're apt to break the window. He comes home the next night, and the boy's throwing the ball against the, wind, the side of the house. Dad says, don't throw the ball against the side of the house. You might break the window. Comes home the third night. Good, the boy isn't out there. The window's broken. <laughs> boy's nowhere in sight. A father still loves his son just as much as he always has, but the boy does not want to be around the father at all. He's up hiding in his room, and when it finally comes time for dinner, 
he kind of comes down and he doesn't want to look his father in the face. There's a separation that takes place, and that's what happens when we let lust or fear or pride control our thoughts. It makes a division between us and God, and we aren't fellowshipping with him, enjoying the pure love that he has for us and being able to understand that. It's not about knowing what I'm supposed to do or knowing what I'm not supposed to do. We have to remember that God has revealed himself to us in his word, and everything hinges on knowing him. Paul understood that being able to love God requires true knowledge of God. He wrote about it to the Corinthians. He said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge. And to the Ephesians he wrote, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And to the Philippians he wrote, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And to the Colossians he wrote, for this reason since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, being being, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Knowing God was of ultimate importance to, to Paul. That's what that passage that we read this morning was all about. But it was on a very personal level. It wasn't just a general knowledge about God that we get from just kind of reading, reading through the Bible quickly. He talks about this. Let me read these verses from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 again. More than that, I count all things... And he talked about the things that he had achieved in his own life. He was at the pinnacle of where a person could be at that, at that point in Israel's history. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, that I may know him. In our Bible study, our, our, our small group study this past year, we came up with this, with this little, uh, little thing that really struck me and I've, I've kept it in mind. The more time I spend with him, the more I know him. The more I know him, the more I love him. And the more I love him, the more I trust him. That's the essence of living the Christian life. It's faith in God and what he is doing through me and what he will do through me. Peter talked about it in 2 Peter chapter 1, seeing that his divine power, his divine power, think again about this God who made this universe. His divine power has granted to us everything everything pertaining to life and godliness through, again, the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Remember at the beginning I mentioned God doesn't try to force us by laws into, into compliance. He infuses himself into us that we might become partakers of the divine nature. What an absolutely staggering thought that is. 
having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. He's revealed himself to us. We just need to look. Number two, that I may know the power of his resurrection. John said in 1 John 3, 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Is he able to carry that out? Paul dealt with this in Ephesians and other places. But in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 19, it says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He came to destroy the works of the devil, and there's nothing in all creation that will stop that from happening. That I may know the power of his resurrection. Number three, that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to read that passage again where Jesus talked about what he talked about when he looked at Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. God sent the prophets and the seers to the, to the Israelites because he loved them. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. and You were unwilling. Whenever God sees sin, it's this separation. It grieves him. And my prayer is, may the Holy Spirit help me, help me to be able to see sin the way God sees sin. So I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want sin to grieve me, to upset me, to disturb me, to bother me the way it bothers God, because that will change me. My own thoughts about, well, maybe this is something I shouldn't be doing, that isn't going to work. It hasn't worked all my life. But if I have the perspective on sin that God has, that changes me when I realize how destructive it is and how it inflicts all this destruction and devastation on the relationships that God wants for me above all else. May I, my heart be broken when I see sin, whether it's in myself or in others. May I be filled with godly sorrow, the sorrow that leads to repentance, because I need to recognize that when I sin, I've tarnished the image. I'm reflecting a corrupt image of the pure, pure love of Christ. And may that sorrow produce repentance in me. Again, it's not me. I can't do it on my own. I need to turn to the Holy Spirit, reveal my sin. I confess my sin. Help me to see sin from your eyes. And may that bring about the changes within me. David understood this. Even though he was under the Old Testament law, he understood this. He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. And in the prophet Isaiah, he says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on high in the holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. May I know the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may be conformed to his death. We think about that. What was the result of his death? Sin was done away with. 1 John 3, 5 says, And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Peter wrote about this. He says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness for his wound by his wounds you were healed david writes in psalm as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us i want to be conformed to his death because that means sin is gone that's what happened at the cross he took away sin forever and ever that's my desire Confession of sin reconciles us to God. It restores my relationship, my fellowship with God. It always brings me to the cross. It doesn't bring me to Sinai. And that's where I see the depth and the power of the love of God, not just in a general sense, but the love of God for me personally. At the cross, I rejoice because I'm no longer condemned by God and I'm no longer separated from God. At the cross, I realize that because of the great love God has for me, he has personally orchestrated everything in all of creation and every detail in my life so that all things work together for good. And he's done the same thing for all of you. Imagine the mind of God that is able to orchestrate all these things so that everything is working together for those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. What an amazing God he is. And there's no greater joy than to know that God's love, this marvelous, perfect, indescribable love, pours through me and into the lives of others in a way I could never do on my own. No wonder Paul wrote, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, is that joy that comes about when we are living and dealing with sin according to God's plan. Let's pray. Oh, Father, when we think about sin, how tempted we are to just think about it in terms of condemnation, in terms of a judgment that's going, to, that's going to hurt, that's going to cause us great pain and sorrow, something we don't want to deal with. And yet, Father, we know our sin has been dealt with at the cross. And when we see sin cropping up in our lives from time to time, may that thought, as we confess it and acknowledge it, May it take us right back to the cross and into your loving arms where we see that you've already dealt with that sin. And may that bring great joy to us. May it be something where it encourages us and motivates us to love the way you want us to love. Father, we just pray this morning. There's, there's some deep thoughts here. There's just some, some things that are so hard to grasp and con comprehend. And especially as we go through our lives on a day-by-day -day basis, the things that keep trying to, to take us away from these thoughts, away from your truth. We just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit who lives within us will continue to encourage us and to enable us not only to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, but also that your power will enable us to love the way you want us to love. All this we ask and we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen.